This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 14th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, I was talking with some pastors about what they do for Mother's Day um, and all the things they do, and I said, well, I say happy Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day, and I thought, well... You know, there's not a perfect way because there, honestly, there's a lot of emotion around this. Those who are mothers, want to be mothers, were mothers, have lost mothers. It's like, wow, um, you could address a lot. So I did think, like, I'm just going to have everyone stand up who has a mom and we'll honor them. Like, huh? Huh? That's pretty smart. I was reminded, though, that Paul says in his letter to the same Thessalonians that Kevin referenced, he described his own pastoring. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of his own children. So Paul uses a mom to describe the best way to pastor. So I'll try to be the best mom I can today in honor of that. So open to the book of Genesis. Just kidding. Actually, there are three passages that we're going to go over today. Uh, one is going to be in 2 Corinthians 11, so you can turn there if you'd like. One is going to be in Philippians 4, and one is going to be in Hebrews 13. I know it's a weird title for a pastor, but for a pastor for a sermon. But next weekend, as um, most of you know, and again I told at the beginning of the service there's a letter back there, so I pray that everyone will grab it and, uh, and read through that so you understand just what's going on. But uh, next weekend, my family and I are going to begin um, an extended sabbatical, and that's in accord with our bylaws and under the guidance of our elders. And this time has been planned for a year, so it's not like I'm secretly leaving. Um, I'm intentionally resting so that I can be here for many years, uh, and I pray die here, not right here, but um, with this church. Our family's been serving uh, God's mission by leading God's church in this area for the last 12 years or so, and by grace, we have enjoyed a front row seat to watch God plant uh, three uh, amazing churches and establish um, a growing regional network. And every year, honestly, has been wonderful and horrible all at the same time. And you could probably say the same thing about a lot of things like parenting. It was wonderful and horrible. But every year, without fail, um, our love for Jesus has grown as has our love for God's people. And as much as we're looking forward to our time together, it's actually going to be very hard uh, to be away. It's be like, aren't you looking forward to it? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I've been with many of you for the last dozen years. And it's hard not to be with you as regularly as we have been um, but I think it's a new and necessary experience for our family, one that we expect to learn a lot about ourselves and our God in. And I actually think it is also a very new and necessary experience for our church family. One that honestly is going to reveal a lot about who our church is and what our church is. But before I take my leave, I wanted to take the opportunity to preach about being a preacher. I want to give you a little glimpse, if I can, into the heart of your pastor, if I cry during this sermon, know that with every year I get older, I get like two more tears. So this is maybe the time you'll see those two this year. 
But contrary to what you might think by what you see in mega pastors with mega book deals and mega egos and mega mansions, being a pastor is not as glorious as you might think. It's a calling, which is a really spiritually fancy word of saying that it's a role that men choose to do because Jesus tells them to. There are many days that I have coveted mowing lawns and pushing carts at Costco. But those desires are fleeting and are overwhelmed by the deepest conviction that I'm doing what Jesus has told me to do. And that makes it certainly more meaningful, but it doesn't make it easier. In his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, where our first verses are, he spends, Paul, a significant amount of time defending his ministry. And he does that because in the Corinthian church, whom he loves, and he has written several letters to, um, there have been false teachers coming in proclaiming a different Jesus and a different gospel, a different spirit. And he's like, what are you guys doing? That's not the one or who I preached when I planted the church. And so these false teachers are in many ways disguising themselves as what they would call apostles of Christ, and they're boasting in their spiritual awesomeness. And so Paul, in response, says, let me give you my own resume of awesomeness for his own apostleship. And he does and and recounts his experience as a pastor. And so I'm just going to read in beginning in verse 24 of chapter 11, and I'll read a few verses. And this is his description of his experience to kind of put up his resume against these guys who are false teachers. He says, beginning in verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. They believed that you died basically at 40 lashes, so he's talking about 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And so that's what I'm going to do today. Now as of yet, I have not been lashed, beaten, stoned, or shipwrecked as a pastor. I don't look forward to that happening. But I more than understand, and anyone who's been a pastor or a leader in a church or dare I say even a parent, understands the daily pressure and the anxiety that comes from that. I preach on this idea, if you will, not as a man who is full, I have arrived at this anxiety-free oasis that is so wonderful, someday you'll be where I'm at. No. I honestly say that uh, I haven't, and I'm not sure I'm ever supposed to, if Paul is speaking about his own anxiety here. But it is my hope that in just sharing my experience as what I'll just describe as an anxious pastor, and I know that has lots of connotations to it, and I'll explain. But I want to help, hopefully, others who maybe are dealing with the same thing, not in the same exact way, but certainly dealing with 
what I would say, anxiety. And in hopefully sharing, honestly, just my screwed upness, it will be helpful to you. Because that's what Paul did. I figure if Paul can do it, I can do it too. So what is anxiety exactly? Because there's lots of definitions you could find. and Some identity or identify anxiety as just stress or worry or just an uneasy feeling of uncertainty and dread. For me, the definition is pretty complex, like Shrek, right? It's got lots of layers to it. And most of those layers I'm finding as I peel them back reveal a lot of uh, screwed up stuff with my heart. Like it's not, um, it's not external. We always think anxiety is about that and that and that, and I'm trying to understand and to, to help you understand that it's about this, actually. But a, a real basic layer, like a couple layers, um, when I speak about anxiety, I'm talking about excessive concern about provision. Am I going to have enough? Or extreme fear over performance, which can imply a lot of areas. Or just tremendous stress over my inability to control circumstances or opinions. Now, explaining what anxiety is is a lot easier than explain why it is. But I think we need to really dig into the why. I don't think feelings of anxiety are intrinsically sinful. In fact, I do believe that God often uses those like they're helpful to reveal sin that might be there. But just because it's there doesn't mean sin's there. But certainly, in my own life, I've, I've seen that some of this anxiety um, at times uh, reveals the presence of genuine guilt. Like you actually need to confess something. And at times, it's just revealing um, the absence of genuine trust in God. So it is revealing some things, and it's, the thing itself isn't really the issue. And we all experience anxiety about lots of things. Some of us more extreme than others. Many would, would describe them as like, I have anxiety um, as, a, as a regular rhythm in my life. Some say it's more momentary and circumstantial. But we can have anxiety about our jobs or our bills or our kids. I know by God's grace because I'm married to a woman who is wonderfully awesome in many ways, but she can have anxiety about conversations. I'm sure no one else has that experience, right? Oh, what did I say? What are they thinking? I want, ooh, let me type an email and just make sure, right? So we have anxiety and it's at different levels and in different ways, but it's powerful. It, 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 can, it can control you. It can disrupt your sleep. It can disrupt your joy. It can rob you of joy. And what I've found is that it can rob me of joy and cause me to make idols out of people or myself. We don't ever think about ourselves as an idol. But when you consider maybe yourself as the means by which you're going to find security, joy, and all these things, then you might consider maybe you've made yourself an idol. I actually think that's my big problem. But what is pastoral anxiety? Um, well, in his epistle, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote something that's interesting, and you may have heard this before. Uh, not many of you, in James chapter 3, verse 1, 
And it's largely a chapter about the tongue and the power of the tongue and all these things. But he starts off and he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a warning, right? And before I became a pastor, I didn't really think about what the, that warning. I really know what that meant. Like, just be careful what I teach because that's going to influence a lot of people. Yeah, that's, that's true. But this judged by greater strictness, is that judged by God? Is that judged by others? What is it? You start kind of really digging into that passage. You're like, what does this actually mean? But I've learned it to be true in a couple different ways. For better or worse, what pastors say or don't say, post or don't post, teach, decide, or even enjoy in their personal lives is under perpetual scrutiny. That's what I've learned. It comes with the territory. For whatever reason though, it also feels that the pastor is inextricably connected to the church. People come to me like, tell me about your church. And they don't mean like the church you attend. Right? You hear pastors even say like, well, you know, my church. And it's like this inextricable connection that's not really that healthy, I think, um, in a lot of ways. But what happens that because that connection, when the, the pastor is perpetually scrutinized, the church itself ends up being perpetually analyzed. And as the church is analyzed, the pastor feels scrutinized. And it goes round and round. Like when someone comes up to me, which has happened, goes, hey, I love the church. You know, your music's not really Spirit-filled. What am I supposed to say to that? But I'll tell you how it makes me feel. We suck. Okay, thanks. Right? And as much as you want to go like, well, that's an issue about you or whatever, maybe it's something I don't know. There's just this weird scrutiny and, and, and analysis that starts going on in the lives of pastors. Anxiety begins to rise as this one man, and again, when I say this one man, I'm not talking about that pastor down the street when he does this. Okay, I'm talking about myself. But when the pastor begins to feel implicitly expected to fix every problem, save every person, have every answer, and be everyone's best friend. Now, because the pastor loves the church, this is the rub. Because the pastor loves the church, he actually wants to fix every problem and save every person and try to have every answer and try to be everyone's friend. But guess what happens to the pastor that tries to do that? They quit! But they can't do it. Because that's actually something, a role that's taken by Jesus. But unfortunately, what I've seen, and, and by God's grace, I haven't fallen for this head first, but I've seen many pastors um, more or less try to live doing that, and they end up living with an ungodly level and an anxiety over problems and people and circumstances they can't really control. But they try. 
So if I may, what I want to do is take just a second to give you a little glimpse as to how I feel when I pastor. And I'm, what I'm, when in doing that, what I'm showing you is my screwed upness. And then after that, say, this is how we can deal with anxiety as a people and as I am trying to deal with it. And these are things that pastors don't typically share, but I'll go for it anyway. First, you need to understand something that um, pastors take everything personally, especially when people leave. It could be the most irritating person in the world. It still hurts that they left. Few people leave churches well. I don't know if you know that. Very few. Some leave in a blaze of glory, and everyone knows it. And then some and most leave very quietly with whispered accusations. Maybe you've been one of those people. Being a pastor, though, can feel like, whether it should or not, it can feel like being in a perpetual state of rejection. And what that does, it, it, it starts to feed this feeling that you're supposed to perform every week. Like, if you do well, if the sermon goes well, everyone's showing up next week. And if it goes poorly, <laughs> empty. The church feels like it rises and falls on the wisdom and sermon of one man. I'm not saying that's the way it is, but I'm saying that's how pastors often feel. A lot of pressure. I better perform. Better not say this because that will upset this person. Second thing that pastors, here's a cat out of the bag, right? Actually struggle with sin too, but it doesn't seem like they're actually really allowed to. We celebrate transparency, but not too much. Because the pastors, they're like super Christians, right? They've got like capes, and they pray 24-7, and they've memorized the entire Bible. No. As one friend noted, uh, he said, you know, I have people come up to me all the time and go, it must be awesome to get like paid for a, you know, like I have a paid quiet time. That must be rad. Sure. Um, here's my thought. My thought, it must be awesome. It must be rad that, you know, you can say something, share something, vote something, enjoy something, do something. Make a mistake without people going, hey, isn't that the pastor of Restoration Road? His actual example was, it must be nice to be able to flip off somebody in, you know, when you're driving and not think, oh, you know what the pastor of Restoration Road did to me? <laughs> now, I don't do that or have that experience, but you get the point, right? Third thing, pastors, um, and again, I don't want to like put this weight on you like, oh, this is why he's going on sabbatical. Like, no, that's not the case. Um, and I, 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 as a side, man, our church, here comes one of the two. You guys love us well. Very well. And so I, I, I say this is to be helpful, not like put a burden on you and to feel guilty about something. But I will say that, uh, it's, to be honest, pastors regularly think about quitting. 
And it's because pastors typically feel like they've failed more than they've actually helped people. And I'll tell you something, it doesn't matter what you say. It's a perpetual feeling that, that um, well, that you know, being a truck driver, making deliveries feels a lot more attractive than making disciples at times. Because a pastor's job goes, like, here, here's a lot of what it is. We, we, we seem to go from problem to problem. Trying to solve a problem, next problem, and next problem. And like, it doesn't feel like we solve a lot of problems. You know, it's kind of like, I'm not a baseball fan. For those who are, I'm sorry. I hate it. But, like, I've always been interested, like, yeah, that guy's batting average, like, you know, like, 325, it's really good. Like, so, like, 32% of the time? Like, that's good? Like, uh, think of a pastoral batting average of, like, 250, right? And you're like, yeah, like, 25% of the time I see success in counseling. Oh, how would you feel? I would love to believe that everyone sitting on the counseling lines go, well, let me tell you what your problem is. Just open up to Luke 10. It's right there. And they go, no one told us that. And they go out and they're just like, we love each other. It doesn't happen. So you can feel like, man, what am I doing? What am I doing? We feel very ill-equipped. And I, I don't think that's very different than a lot of people probably feel in a lot of ways. Like, husbands probably don't feel equipped as a husband all the time. Wives, moms, dads, like, I don't feel like I'm like, you know, super husband, super like, great. Now you know how I feel as a pastor. But it pushes us to a place of like, man, teaching looks really attractive in the high school again. But the Lord has different ideas. A couple other things. Pastors do struggle with competition and jealousy because they're never really sure if they're doing enough. And they measure themselves by numbers and we play the compare game because, well, there's a lot to compare to. It's not difficult to play the compare game. There are literally thousands of churches preaching the same text and reaching the same people and it feels like everybody's always doing a better job than you are, right? It's kind of like with your family, and you're like, man, that family's really got it together. Why family? Why is it so screwed up? Like, well, it's the same idea. But lastly, I will say that pastors spend probably more time discouraged than encouraged because like everyone else, pastors fight getting their worth from ministry. Here's a little secret. When things are going well, pastors feel great. When things are like um, stable, pastors are anxious. That's like, like, things are, like, they're even. Everything's like, something's wrong somewhere. And when things are going poorly, they feel defeated. And every criticism and every compliment only feeds this anxiety. Really? Compliments? Now, I don't want you to not compliment. But I don't understand what goes on in the mind of the pastor, right? Man. Now, I'm not saying this has happened. Let's just imagine. Man, that was an amazing sermon. Well, thank you. I better have an amazing sermon next week. That's how, that's how it happens. It's, it's, it's ugly and it's, and it's dark and it's because... 
um, we're trying to find our identity in something that isn't designed to give us identity. So for me, here's the best way to describe my anxiety as a pastor. I have a repetitive dream. It hasn't happened lately by God's grace, but I have a repetitive dream I've shared with some of you. I used to be a high school teacher, high school coach, so here's my dream. And maybe this is similar to you in some way. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just a weirdo. But I'm a high school teacher. I'm a soccer coach. But the season's been going for two months and I've missed practice. You go, that's kind of weird. And I had that dream. When you have that dream like 25 times, you're like, hmm, maybe the Lord's trying to say something, right? And I determined this is what he was trying to say. I function under this mentality that there's something I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not right now. And I'm wondering what that is. There must be something that I'm responsible to do that, that, is, that needs my attention and it creates anxiety, which I couldn't even tell you what that thing is, but that feeling is there. So, as I said, this is not a pity party. This is a confession. The confession for you to understand how I function, how you can pray with me, but also a way, hopefully, to to learn how we can deal with anxiety. So if you look at Philippians 4, we're going to read that. How, How do we deal with this kind of anxiety that's attached to all these things? And I'm not convinced pastoral anxiety, as I described, will ever go away but I appreciate that Paul has some very specific things to say about anxiety, and I think he can say it because he's dealt with it. Philippians 4, um, I'm going to begin in verse 4, but actually I'm going to read, I'm going to begin in verse 2, because it's an interesting little intro there. I entreat Yodia, Yodia? I don't know, Yoda, whatever. And I entreat Sinitche to agree in the Lord. So these two people, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, these two ladies, who aren't in agreement, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ironically, that's the first verse my mom had me memorize when I was a young kid. So I've learned that the first thing that a pastor, and I would say the same thing for a parent, needs to remember is that you're a sheep before you're a shepherd. And even when you're a shepherd, you're still a sheep. There are no superheroes. Moms are close. Moms are close. But there really are no superheroes. The truth is, no one expects you to be perfect, have every answer, or never experience anxiety. The interesting thing is, um, God doesn't expect our perfection. We put almost a higher standard on ourselves than God does, which will never end up well. And yes, He says, be perfect. I understand that. That ain't attached to us. It's attached to Christ. 
No one expects us to have every answer. We, as pastors, are basically mailmen delivering letters from the only perfect one who has every answer. And we should be able to basically do that, deliver the mail, and not have anxiety because we have already turned ourselves to the one who frees us from it. Hypothetically. Basically, we can pastor because we have been pastored. We can be shepherds because we've been sheep. But what we learn in this passage is, is what is at the root of anxiety? For me, anxiety manifests itself in a way that makes me feel or look joyless. Paul is speaking to a church who seems to have some relational conflict and he tells them, be joyful in the Lord. Anxiety has the power to rob us of joy. And I, for the longest time, thought my problem was joy. Like, maybe I'll just not, like, just, just be joyful. Right? Because <laughs> that's what it looks like. Like, you just like Mr. Poopy Pants all the time. Right? I'd just be joyful. I just, if I had a switch, I could turn it on. But I discovered through this passage and others that joy is actually connected with a lack of peace. That in many ways, I think peace gives birth to joy. Passage teaches us also that peace can't be found actually in me. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the peace that assuages anxiety and helps me isn't actually in me. See, whenever I experience anxiety, whenever I have those things I can't control, people don't like me, or I don't feel like I performed well, I, I don't know about you, but guess what I do? I go inward and backward and selfward. That's why I get so quiet and joyous because I'm like, hmm, where did I mess up? What's wrong with me? That's the inward part, right? Or I look backward and my mind goes crazy like, where did I go wrong? Where did I go left when I was supposed to go right? Or I look selfward and say, what can I fix? What can I do to, to change this situation? There must be something I'm doing wrong. There must be something I can do right. How can I fix this? And it's a search for peace. But it's a search that's based off of myself and my wisdom, and my power. You hear the root in that? Me, 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 me. How can I, me, my, how can I fix this? That's not what Paul says about anxiety. He says it's not found in me. It's not found in I. It's not found in us. There's no peace there, and yet I'm like digging for it. i got to find peace somewhere. It's in there somewhere. He also says that it can't be created by me. It's not in me and it can't be created by me. I can't create my own peace. According to Paul, true peace of mind is actually independent of anything I can do. Peace can't be found in my ability to control because newsflash, you won't be able to control everything. Oh, I think I can. You're a control freak. You can't. 
Peace can't be found in my accomplishments because, at least for me, I never feel like I can do quite enough. There must be something more I can do. And there likely is. And peace can't be found in my perfection because you'll never be able to avoid failure. And if you are basing your peace on your ability to never fail, guess what happens when you do fail? You're destroyed. You're devastated. It can't even be found in making everyone happy because there will always be someone who doesn't like something about you. In fact, Jesus warns, like, don't let everyone say nice things about you. That's scary. You know what Paul tells us? He says, peace can't be achieved at all. It actually has to be received. That, that you need to move outward and you need to move forward and you need to move Godward. He says that, that only God can provide the peace we need. And it's a peace that doesn't make sense. A peace that transcends understanding. And to get this peace, and it's a peace, guess what, that we all want. If you struggle with joy, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with contentment, you're looking for peace. And Paul says, look, you have to draw near to the One who cares for us. You have to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And when you are praying to God, like what that is, it's a, it's a, it's a moment of communion with God. But it's also a moment of humility because you're going before the Lord of the universe. As you humble yourselves and you go before the God who doesn't give us what we deserve. And more than that, we thank Him because He gives us what we don't. So it says, go to Him. Pray to Him. Go before Him. Thank Him. And then what do you do? You give voice to your very real fears, dreads, anxieties. And you notice what he doesn't say? He says, don't pray that your circumstances change. Because the problem isn't in the circumstances. The circumstances are being used to reveal the problem, which is in here. He essentially says, look, you don't pray in order to find peace from your circumstances. You pray to find peace in those circumstances. That there's a way to experience peace even when you cannot control what's going on outside of you and that is to come to God in prayer. In his first epistle, Peter had said, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You know, I'm convinced this is why, in many ways, I would say I'm not the greatest prayer warrior in the world. It's because I'm a prideful son of a gun. Because when you truly pray, it takes humility to admit that you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as wise as you think you are. You're not as control as you think you are. Or 
as others might think. And refusing to take your anxieties to God and just deal with them yourself, it's not just kind of unfortunate. It is sinful. Because it's prideful. It's prideful to believe you can control all of your circumstances. It's prideful to believe that you can prove you are worthy. It's prideful to believe that you can create your own peace. The lack of peace is rooted in the feeling of not being good enough, not being in control enough, and not doing enough to please men. And essentially, here's what I think anxiety is. Though we never attach it to this, it's, it's a form of narcissism. Maybe people have attached to it, but it struck me because I'm, I'm not narcissistic. That describes so-and-so, not me. You know what a narcissist is at, at its core? Lots of things. It's where you spend most of your time thinking about yourselves or thinking about what other people are thinking about you. See, anxiety is rooted in believing that all things are dependent upon you. And as their pastor, I have been wrong to believe that the success of the church or even your spiritual maturity is largely and primarily dependent upon me. And that's wrong. And I need your forgiveness for that. Because there's no peace there. Only a constant pursuit of peace that can't be found in stuff I can control. That's when you know it's time for a sabbatical. But that's not the reason. This has been planned for some time. But I will say this. Here's the hope. As a person who happens to be a pastor, the Gospel completely frees me from this. Though it's easy to forget. Because the Gospel shows me that peace is not found in my control, in my strength, or my work, but in Jesus's. I will not have peace with every person I can't impress. I will not have peace with the feelings that I can't ignore or the circumstances that I can't control. But that doesn't matter because you know what? I have peace with God. And the beautiful thing about peace with God that comes through the Gospel is that it wasn't obtained by something that I ever did. And so I can't ever lose it. God made peace with me through the blood of His Son. God made peace with me. The cross not only shows me that He's in control of what seems like the most chaotic of circumstances, but that God has actually planned for my imperfection. Do you know how much comfort that brings? That God planned for my imperfection as a man and a husband and as a dad and as a pastor, that when he puts us into those roles, he doesn't go, <gasps> I thought you'd be way better at that. <laughs> right? He goes, no, I know exactly who you were and exactly who you will be. In other words, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, God is pleased with me 
Even if you aren't, or they aren't, or if I'm not. Doesn't really matter. It only matters what God thinks. That's hard to remember. But we all remember it. I was struck, and I've remembered this for many years, a pastor who told me, don't forget what Jesus was told at his baptism. That before he did a minute of ministry, his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before he did anything. The gospel through prayer helps me to work from peace and not for peace. From peace and not for peace. So let me close, and I really mean it. This last passage in Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17. I'm going for a brief break, but there are pastors and leaders who are left here, and so I want to give you some encouragement as to how to help pastors who all are feeling this way, maybe me more than others. Hebrews 13, 17. This seems like a weird passage, but just stick with me. Obey your leaders and submit to them. All right, let's pray. No, that's not, that's not the focus. It says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Check this out. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For what that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience to desire to act honorably in all things. Know that we recognize, I recognize that I will give an account to the Lord for how I pastored you in a way that you will not give an account to me for how you were pastored. That's different. And I think about that constantly. All pastors should. It's a heavy burden, but it's my responsibility and my privilege along with the other elders and the pastors at different churches But by God's grace, we are keeping watch over these souls. And it's not done perfectly, but it is done faithfully. It's not done forcefully, but certainly willingly. And it's not done reluctantly, but please know, very eagerly. We love this church. I love this church. Not as much as Jesus, but I love it. But church... Restoration Road Church, you must consider what it means to let your pastors pastor with joy. That's what the Bible says. Let them. Let them do this with joy. So ask yourself how you can help me do this with joy. And I would give you some real basic things. Number one, don't let me be Jesus to you. What I mean is like, I hope I'm a good shepherd, but I'm a crappy Savior. So don't make a Savior out of your pastor. I have no power to fix you. Only Jesus does. Second, don't be Jesus to me. Some of that's out of your control, but Jesus is both Savior and judge. Let's let Jesus be my judge and not you. Third, preach Jesus to us. Preach, you know one of my greatest like, hopes for is during the sabbatical? I get to go listen to other men preach to me because I hear myself a lot. Right? 
We need to hear the Gospel too. We need to be reminded of, of the love of Jesus through your actions and through your words. In other words, we need grace too. But lastly, and, and most importantly, pray for us. That's what Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, I don't, maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, who knows. But pray that we will ultimately love and depend on Jesus more than we depend on you. That is the prayer for every husband, for every wife, every parent, every pastor, that you will love Jesus more than you love your husband or wife, love Jesus more than you love your kids, because that's the best thing for your kids and wife and husband and everybody else. The best thing for me, which is for you, like help me help you, is for you to pray that I will love Jesus deeply. And I will know Jesus deeply because then you'll see my heart come out and all you hear is Jesus pouring out. Otherwise, it's going to be about me. We close with communion every Sunday. And I want to just remind you of one thing as you consider um, your role in this church and our role as a church know that um, this is the table for believers this is a table for those who are not just committed to Jesus but committed to this people there are many places you could be but you especially those who are covenant members have said I'm taking ownership in these people my brothers and sisters and I'll remind you something that the pastors come to this table too In many ways, and some might argue like, I'm your pastor, but I'm also your brother. Don't forget that. And I won't forget what I'm supposed to remember, which is a lot, obviously. Thank you for loving us well. Let's pray.